If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And welcome to, I. we've wanted to do this, show, this episode for a long time, and I'm really, really excited. Um, we are going to talk about the legendary Gene L. Kuhn, whose unbelievable story you may or may not have heard, or you may think you've heard, but you don't know because we have somebody with an equally amazing story who knew Gene better than anyone we've ever talked to. Most of the, the stories are secondhand. You're going to hear them firsthand for what's probably the first time. I know when we had Ralph Sineski on recently, he had Gene, <laughs> <laughs> but nothing like you're going to hear today. So before I introduce our next guest, I want to welcome back Ashley Miller. He's the writer of such movies as Thor and X-Men First Class. He's a writer-producer on TV shows like Fringe and Thor. <laughs> and you're wondering, who is our special guest? This is so exciting. This is so exciting because we have with us Andy Kindred. Andy worked with Gene L. Kuhn for many, time, for many years, but has incredible story to tell herself. She was working uh, for the, uh, tell me, feel free to correct me, for the Urban League, and she found out that Paramount Desilu, Desilu at the time, had no African-American assistants. They were called secretaries back then. And she went up and, uh, and, and uh, got a job there, and shortly thereafter found herself working for Gene. Uh-oh. <laughs> Basically what happened was Watts exploded. Ah. When Watts exploded, Lucy was ahead of everybody at Jesse Blue. She was doing stuff people weren't doing. And I think she said, I think maybe we should have a couple of black people here because at Jesse Blue, the only people black there were the janitors or the actors who were playing janitors. So they went to the Urban League, whose job was to get black people into jobs that had they hadn't been in before. And they said to me, look, you worked in radio, so you ought to be able to do this. And they sent me up to Jesse Lou, which I thought, <laughs> and it all worked out. And, and how did you feel about that? Because, I mean, you had never done anything like this secretarial work before. I mean, you were doing other things. You were, you were at the early stages of your activism. I, and and, and uh, you are going to work at, uh, at the Desilu. What, 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 what would you remember? I mean, it's like a time machine. I know we're going... <laughs> Backward. A job. It, I, I've just been working the time machine. It's called my memoir. Um, it was a job. Now, I was there with Watts because it, we were pissed off with what was going on, with the lack of jobs, with the police harassment, with the segregation. Mm -hmm. um, Prop 13, which was said that black people could not buy houses if they had a restrictive covenant on it. We were pissed off about a lot of things. So when the Urban League came to me and said, look, we've got this, these people want some uh, clerical help. I knew clerical because I was a Kelly girl, hmm. a temp person, um, and I knew I could type really good. I didn't take shorthand for crap. Um, and and 
I felt I had to go because I had to represent my people. I was going to go to a job that they hadn't had a black person there before, and I had to be it. Well, they hired two of us because, you know, get a male and a female so that they can be company for each other. He was an accountant. We had nothing to say to each other. And I became the floater secretary, which meant I just worked all over the lot in every place. So I got to learn what was going on and conscious that I needed to be able to be good at it. I jumped into it as, as enthusiastically as I can. I've been working with Martin Luther King. I've been working with Malcolm X, uh, Maulana Karinga, Medgar Evers. I've been in that area and they were getting killed. So I thought it was a safe place to be. And uh, so you, you go to work for Desolate Studios. Now, this is, I mean, this is incredible because you knew Martin, Martin Luther King, you knew Malcolm X, you knew Karenga, uh, who's still with us, thankfully, and uh, and teaching now. Um, I mean, tell us a little bit, before we get to Gene and Desilu, I mean, it was an unbelievable time of social change. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that was like and being, you know, a young African-American woman at that time growing up in California and, uh, and, 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 and obviously two very opposing philosophies in, in, in Dr. King's philosophy and of course in, in Malcolm's philosophy. <laughs> I know, my mother used to freak out when Malcolm would call, but when Dr. King would call, oh, Andrea, it's Dr. King on the phone, it's Dr. King. But my uh, grandmother wrote Malcolm, my mother was pro-Martin, and I was in the middle. Now, Martin used to ask, he asked me about Malcolm, what I thought about him, because the women in his office were very curious about this guy. And I got sprung. One day we were in the limo. He was going to speak at a church. And when we got out of the limo, Malcolm was there with a bunch of, of, of Fruit of the is is Islam guys. And I just forgot. I just raged over it. I said, I'm a Lego, Brother Minister Malcolm. How are you? And I hear this scream behind me. It's the bishop's wife. She sees me talking to this radical man and she's freaking out. So I'm sprung. Now Martin knows I know Malcolm. So I sort of got a chance to talk to, about them to each uh, about each of them to the other. I felt really good about that because they were both people that I really respected and followed. But Martin was a bit too peaceful for me. I was pissed off. And if you looked around, there were no black people on television except in jobs as um, maids and things. I mean, when Percy Rodriguez, who was a Starfleet Admiral, officer, Admiral oh. when he got a job on Peyton Place as a doctor, it was on front page, yeah. below the fold, but it was on the front page. Black actor or something plays doctor on television and people got pissed off because they said well why does he have to be a surgeon and and i thought the first person to ever operate on a heart a human heart was a black surgeon yeah. come on he's not yeah. the first guy on that we had so i was very conscious one that i had to be representing to that I had an Afro, in those days they were just called naturals, and there were very few of them around, squished under my wig because my mother would not let me show it because it wasn't proper attire for work. And I had to, to learn as much as I could because I had to be good at it. Mm -hmm. So, and there was no images. We aren't, weren't any black people around when the shell went on that stage. Wow. <gasps> Talk about yeah. that because you're working at Desilu, you're one of two African-Americans working there, and you get a call that they need help over at this new show, uh, which hadn't aired yet, but uh, had been in production a little bit, uh, Star something or other, Star Trek. Um, what was that like? And, and tell us how you found yourself working for Gene Coop. Okay, well, I was the floater, so I worked every place on the lot. I worked at the reception desk, I worked on Mission Impossible when it was early days, mm -hmm. and, and I worked on Star Trek. I even went to, I worked at Desi Luke Culver, because I used to work at all the lots. I worked at Desi Luke Culver while they were reshooting the pilot. So that was, and that was great. But I knew, star, I knew science fiction because Malana Karinga. Karinga had read my, the first, to me, the first star, um, Heinlein, The Lake. I'm mm -hmm. sure it was The Lake. 
And he started telling me about this guy. And so he started reading the story. And I remember curling up with the phone under my ear, listening. And that was my very first science fiction. I loved it. And I loved science fiction. So when I got a chance to work on that show, it was great. But when Gene Kuhn asked me to work for him permanently to give up the floating and work with him full time, I wasn't sure I wanted to. I mean, I wanted the job, I wanted the extra pay, but the idea of being a black woman militant, working for a guy named Kuhn, left me open to be called Kuhn's Kuhn. And I was concerned about that. And it did happen, and when it did happen, it was a black guy that did it to me, not somebody else. Mm. So that really pissed me off. But Gene hired me because I had mini skirts. I had the best legs on the lot. And he had a thing about the top curve of a woman's thigh. He thought that was the <laughs> That's something we didn't expect to learn about Gene Kuhn today. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry, I would have immediately. Totally. Yeah. Um, we won't. We won't talk about the bird. <laughs> there's um, a thing that I keep thinking: Do I put it in the book, or don't I? <laughs> so you're working. You're working on this book, but I, I want to talk about what convinced you ultimately to go and to accept the job with Gene. I mean, how much did you know about him at that point? Did you know his father was a Klansman? Did you know? No. Did you know his? You know, he told me that later. How did you know his father was a Klansman? I'm. I, it's my personal mission to put a spotlight on Gene L. Kuhn because yeah. we know him as the forgotten Gene. He's been completely overshadowed. That's right. And the problem is, of course, having died when he did, it was before Star Trek exploded. Now there are people, right. obviously, that know what a, an amazing contribution he made to Star Trek, what he brought with the Prime Director. Where's his star on Hollywood Boulevard? Where's his star? Give me a break. Where's his star? And, and it doesn't detract from anybody else on the show to say Gene Kuhn brought the heart to Star Trek, you know, and, and, and these relationships and the humor and, and so much of what we associate with Star Trek. So I want to talk about, so you, you decide you're going to take the job. What, what, what convinced you that you, you wanted the gig? Well, I liked him. And he was sense of humor. We shared that. Mm. And so that was the first thing. He and Martin both were um, followers of Reinhard Niebuhr, and who was a philosopher, a minister, and, a, and an advocate. Uh, um, and so I had already been used to Martin and his way of thinking, the, the not the turned of the cheek, but the love force that he gotten from Gandhi. So all of these things came together, and in Gene Kuhn, that's where they were. When I first met him, I'm, mm. but after I got to know him, and after we talked, after, and then we used to just hang out sometimes. We'd just sit and talk about stuff. And he was always open to that. Now, I'm not saying that he, was perfect in any way. He was very much uh, of the day, which meant women were over there and they did this, this, and this. But he was a lot light, easier with color. Hmm. And I think that's from, he told me about the reserve, the Indians in Beatrice. So he, he and he had a sense, I don't know if you say guilt, but he had a sense of needing to help and to help people to raise themselves up. Open Door workshop with the Writers Guild. He was right there with it. Well, you know, so, sorry, go yeah. they say, you know, now that people then uh, uh, lived life and that's why they wrote such great TV. And now people, you know, write TV because they don't have the experiences. I mean, he was a World War II veteran. He was a Korean War veteran. He was a, a, a radio. He was with Chesty. Yeah. He was with Chesty Puller, our hero. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, I was to a Marine. So, and Jeannie was an ex-Marine. So, again, we clicked in that area as well. You know, he was with him at the Chosun Reservoir. I mean, oh, who would know what that is? Excuse me. I'm 81 years old. God. 
Um, so you, you, you start to get to know him and, and you see his really interesting writing because of course, this is a guy who was known for the speed at which he wrote. Um, he had created, come up with the, he'd taken McHale's Navy and cracked that for television at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Monsters. Monsters, right? Right. Yeah. We had Ted Cassidy on one of the episodes as well. Sure. What a sweet guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Gene, he was a good writer. He was a very fast writer. I had a really good doctor who gave me the best amphetamines you could ever get. Uh, <laughs> yeah, how early. That why he was such a quick writer, the, the amphetamines? I mean, he talked about, I mean, I guess a, a automatic writing, uh, which was, is, is, I mean, how much is there truth to that? That he would sort of noodle a concept and then go on to almost this hypnotic state and just write nonstop. I mean, how much of that was the amphetamines and how much of that was just natural ability? Um, the amphetamines were always, that's why he was always sort of grinding. Right. Um, but then we did that. They were legal, actually, in those days. They were legal. Uh, so he was a fast writer. I don't remember him going in any kind of trance. Maybe I just didn't notice. Right, right, right. He was fast. And, okay, Devil in the Dark was a special thing. He, he whipped that one out real quick. But otherwise, he just seemed to not be that much different than people. But he, he was fast. Yeah. Devil in the Dark, he wrote in a weekend, and it's probably one of the most definitive Star Trek episodes. The whole idea of misinterpreting uh, uh, the horrible creature and, 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 and realizing that it's only a mother protecting its eggs. Spoiler alert. Absolutely. That's one of my very favorite episodes. I mean, Giannis, I, 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 he sort of freaked me out because Giannis would come in sometimes in a, a gorilla outfit. <laughs> and I was like, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> but, uh, and then, Giannis, that that character and Gene just went with it, and yeah. we, I just is it Doctor, what's his name, who was the Jackson's doctor as well. I no wonder Michael's voice didn't break for a long time. Uh, don't remember his name. I'm not going to. Re I remember his name. Giannis <laughs> <laughs> had come in. Dressed as the he would just in costumes and came in with as the Horda, uh, uh, and 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 Gene saw it and said, "I know exactly what to do with that," and came up with the Devil in the Dark based on that Horda idea. That yeah, yeah, yeah. what did you? What was your Nichelle and 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 you know sort of seeing this this woman on the bridge of color with there had never really been that in science fiction before. I mean, did, did it mean a lot to you at the time? Well, she and George both meant a lot to me at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, for the first time, it wasn't this vicious, ugly Asian dude. And, right. and, and there was a black woman on the bridge. Mm -hmm. I was proud. And Michelle and I were related. So that, you know, it- You were related? It, yeah, we were ex-wives-in-law. Oh, really? <laughs> Her ex-husband and my ex-husband married the same woman. Wow. So. <laughs> okay. Um, let me ask you about this because there was also another uh, uh, man who was uh, on a groundbreaking quest at the time, and that was Stanley Robertson, who was the first... Oh, God. <laughs> Stanley. Stanley was the first African-American network executive, and he was your current executive on Star Trek. What can you tell us about him? He's another one who doesn't get much attention uh, or, or, or people don't know a lot about. He ended up going and running Cosby's company eventually. And, you know, he passed away a few years ago. But uh, what can you tell us about Stanley? Stanley. I, I'm glad you asked because um, I was looking at Stanley and I was looking at what I'd written. I finished the first uh, draft, so it, it's done. But I, I, when I was looking at it again, I thought I was way too hard on Stanley, and I and I had to go back and 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 be kinder. Stanley, I knew because he was my friend, cousin or something. I knew him because he was a, a journalist, and he had a regular weekly column in the black newspaper, and he was very. Stanley was almost blind. 
he couldn't, he'd been in school for the blind as, he was, as a child. And then he'd gone to LA City College and done journalism. And then he became a full-time reporter at the, uh, at the Sentinel newspaper. Then he went to work for uh, Johnson Publication with Ebony. And then he came back and went to USC to do a degree and then work in the motion picture industry as a, as a page. This is a man who had his eye on the prize, who knew where he was going, and who I think told him at, at, at NBC, look, you know, I'm, I'm a published, I have a following, I think you better hire me. And he got the job. Um, and with him, Stanley knew how to play the game so well, so whatever Gene saw was a mirage. Gene thought he saw a, I'm talking about Bird now. Great mm -hmm. Bird. He thought he saw a, a, a black guy who was going to be a confederate, somebody who was going to work with him, somebody who was going to help him achieve all these things. And Stanley with this, um, the picture on the front of my book is, is me and Gene, and in the background is Stanley with the pipe in his hand. <laughs> not singing too well, but there, he was so cool. And so he was anything Gene Roddenberry wanted him to be hmm. until he got the job. And then Stanley came out. He knew who his boss was. He worked for NBC. Right. Whose interest? NBC. Who's everything? NBC. That's why he got to be the first vice president. Sure. He, he, he was, I thought, not very competent as far as stories were concerned. I, I don't think he had a really good grasp of, of the structure and what we needed. He was hard. Gene, I think Bird really wished he hadn't hired him. Hmm. But there was nothing he could do about it by the time they got there. But Stanley, when he made that film with um, about the, the um, Navy guy, I think Stanley was making a movie about himself. Against all the odds, the first black man too, and all that. Because I, yeah, he so, did a good job. He stayed married to the same wife the whole time. He, you know, he just didn't have very good story sense. Right. Those crappy scripts. Hmm. And he was a little bit of a myth maker. What does that mean? means uh, creating the uh, creating the reality that he wanted to portray. Oh, heck yes. Yes, absolutely. And Stanley had very strong views. He used to do a, his column and he would have a column on We Ain't Ready, which would be any black person he saw that wasn't dressed appropriately, didn't speak appropriately. Did, you know, he was very critical yeah. in that sense. He had these old standards. He was real old school. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, Stanley, what can I say? He got his movies made. He took a lot of crap from a lot of people for a lot of years, but he persevered. Right. Yeah. And from a production point of view, you know, Gene had to deal with him. And I know that the network was always pushing for bigger, more planets, more, you know, less on the Enterprise. And, yeah had so much money to do this show. And that, that's an eternal struggle between the network and the, the producers who have a limited budget. And he wasn't really, he didn't want to get too political either, Stanley. He, he wasn't all that thrilled with getting political. But they didn't give him the money, but then they, he wanted more, more planets, you know, more planets and don't get off stage 10. Right. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we be shooting on tin all the time. Put some, <laughs> some boulders over in that corner. Let's call this planet, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Throw and, throw the purple gels up and call it a new one. Yep. Yeah. And and then when you were working on you know the different different episodes and it was going through your typewriter, you know, was Gene actively soliciting your feedback? I mean, what, do you recall sort of what your thoughts were about the material? Did you know that this was a special show? Not that you'd be talking about it in 50 years. Nobody knew that. But did you know that this yeah. was... We did not think anything about what we going to say. Oh, yeah, Gene, here, let me get you another glass of Slivovitz. Because he did like this Polish brandy. Here, let me get you another glass. Now, in 50 years' time, what shall we tell the people we were thinking? 
What? What? What can you say? Sorry, go ahead. So we were doing the best job we could. We were trying to tell good, exciting, interesting stories. We're trying to. Gene was doing Cold War. He was doing Russia right. and America. You know, we we used to have drop drills. The kids now have gun drills. We had drop drills, and there was a hotline between America and Russia. And so he had this Klingons who were was sort of like the bad, bad guys. But Gene just wanted injustice. He, he wanted non-interference. Yeah. You know, my friends here in Australia, my Aboriginal friends say, darn, why didn't we have that here? Why didn't they let cooking? Why didn't we have non-interference or cook? Yeah. Yeah. And and the Klingons were very much the Soviets. That uh, and and it's interesting because you you had somebody like John Calicos who was sort of more of a nemesis, and then later you have like William Campbell who's sort of a buffoon like Khrushchev. So you sort of have your Brezhnevs and your Khrushchevs in the way that the Klingons are portrayed. And um, Campbell was one of Gene's special friends. He's a really good friend of Gene's. And and now and and Gene didn't always get along with actors, so that is a testament to what a great guy Will Bill Campbell was. What was what was Gene's relationship? Because obviously, as a showrunner, you need to deal with your cast, and this had a very strong cast um, in in more ways than one. And of course, they say the old axiom is the first year it's your show as the creator, the second year belongs to you and your cast, and the third year it belongs to the cast. So that second year. What was it like for Gene having to deal with Bill Shatner and deal with Leonard and to a lesser extent deal with Dee Kelly? Yeah, it, it wasn't his favorite thing, but I think less than the, the cast members, he had a problem with having to deal with the writers because these are his peers and he's having to, to say things to him that he doesn't, to them that he doesn't want to say, having to, to rewrite their scripts and they're, you know, they're pretty precious about those things. That was, I, I think he, he could let the, the actors go, it was just a nuisance. But I think dealing with the writers was painful for him and was, it hurt. I'm sure because it's I'm it's <laughs> <laughs> well you can an honorary Jew subject to two thousand <laughs> years of Thanks, Harlan. Obviously, since since a lot of that uh, a lot of that Harlan situation has come to light now, uh, in the wake of uh, his passing and uh, and uh, Dorothy Fontana passing away as well. Yeah, DC. Um. It's uh, it's sort of interesting to hear the the retelling of the story of how uh, City on the Edge of Forever was uh, rewritten and remolded into the shape that could fit into the series. Um, yeah. And what was your what was your uh, dealings with that? Because I'm sure you were very close to that situation. Well, when they brought Harlan in and shoved him down the hall. He used to escape whenever he could. And sometimes he'd escape and come up with me. And he was very special in my heart, not only because he made me an honorary Jew, but because Gene and Majel had a little hideaway down the road, right? And there was an apartment available there. So I went and asked for it. And they said, oh, sorry, it's been rented. Uh, no, we've got somebody coming the whole bit. And I went back and I thought, oh, bullshit. So I told Harlan, Harlan went trudging off down the road to the same apartment, said, oh, I work up the road. I have two kids, the same age, and I'd like, they told him, sure, you can have it. Harlan would do things like that. He was going to Selma, and I couldn't go. My mom said, no, you're not going to Selma and get killed. <laughs> you saw those people got beat up. You're not going. So Harlan was going. He, and then the script, I think one day he climbed out the window to escape. Harlan, Harlan, Harlan was <laughs> He wanted to do anything but right. right? Uh, he wanted to do anything but right. He loved absolutely. to talk about it. <laughs> so he's down on the set, he's down on the set doing research. Right. He's, you know, he's in my office doing research. He, <laughs> that was Harlan. And, and but, oh, go ahead. When he got the, the script, and then when he found out 
what they've done, and he tried to put cord wearing their bird on it, and, and Rodney Bird just went crazy. But he knew that he wanted to submit it to the Writers Guild. And in those days, there was a thing called carbon paper. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> car, how did they given all of his scripts, all of his copies, already, he, they are, they'd already come in? And he didn't have a copy. So one day I had to, when everybody was at lunch, I had to go into our brand new U-Butte feed it a page at a time photocopy machine and make him a copy so he would have a script that he could submit. Mm. And, and um, yeah, that was the day I took off my wig. <laughs> right, because he wanted to submit his original draft for Writer's yeah. Award, which he won. Yes, he did. The Bird and Gene's uh, uh, um, disappointment because they had to sit there while Harlan went up and accepted the award and, and, and criticize them for the show that he just won an award for, you know, based on their largesse. It's a, it's a crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. Harlan was one in a million. Um, Gene was also- Kevin Sturgeon as well. Ted Sturgeon. Ted Sturgeon, right. I mean, we needed a whole bunch of rewriting. We've got these incredibly wonderful science fiction writers. And they're writing what they, how they write and how they right. do best, but it isn't tracked format. Right. So now it's got to be taken apart and rewrite with, with their integrity intact, right. uh, getting the this, this, this needs of the script, uh, of the series, and, and Gene's got to be in the middle of that. He, he didn't handle that too well. Bird was okay, but Gene wasn't too good about that. You know, he didn't you like doing it. You'd think that Ted yes. Sturgeon of all people would be cool with being rewritten because he was the guy who gave us Sturgeon's Law, right? Which is like 99% of everything is crap. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fascinating, though, because, you know, one of, one of Gene's, uh, you know, real jobs, as you mentioned before, was to keep the, keep the quality and, and um, tone of the show intact. And like you said, with all these various uh, professional science fiction writers and, uh, and other types of writers that, who had all their own voices, it's an amazing task that he did to, to sort of bring everything in line and make it a cohesive whole, which he absolutely did. And it's amazing. And then you had Joan over at DeForest, who's sending him notes saying, right. you can't do this and this and that. <laughs> and he had to get up, keep all of that going. And then, then we get the notes in from the from standards and practices. Beware of the open mouth kiss. Right. And DeForest says, oh God, have you delivered in a reverent manner? <sighs> <laughs> now, it's interesting because all these sci-fi authors who thought they were God's gift to mankind or to the universe, it was, you know, it, it was there a reason, it seemed to me that Gene was great at mentoring young talent, like David Gerald in particular, who he saw something in and was, took him through a lot of drafts. And then of course, even DC hadn't had a ton of experience. Uh, she'd written a couple of scripts, but it, it almost felt like the talent that they could mold and teach the Star Trek way was more successful than some of these older writers who felt like they knew everything. I mean, is that true? And there was only one I'm the only one woman. Yeah. Yeah. Well, DC, and then I, after you left, it was Margaret Armin also who was the only. Uh, and no, she was Margaret Armin. I, I, she was there before. Oh. Yeah, she'd come in before. So that, that's who I was thinking of. I, uh, DC was track, but right. the one woman before was, was Margaret Armin. Right. That was it. When the shell, you know, so many of the women, they didn't have any anything to do with the script because the guys only saw them as wearing those cute little dresses with the short skirt on it and the long legs or bird having the, the girls in the sheer symphony things come wandering up from Bill Tyser's office up this road, across the road, down the road, in the middle of the daytime in a place where 95% of the people are males working there. Yeah, I mean, God. Yeah. Yeah, well, Bill Tice was an interesting, I mean, 
I, I, I mean, so much a, a part of that show. I mean, the, the costumes. I mean, here we are 40 years later and they reboot 50. 50 and they're still, you know, yeah. I would say 40 years later when they did Star Trek 2009 and they're still doing Bill Tice's original costumes for all intents and purposes. So, right. I mean, that has endured. And of course, you know, so much of what he did is iconic. Um, it's just a, a remarkable alchemy of everyone that was involved in that show. Um, how did it start to grade on Gene after a while? I mean, it, it, you know, it was brutal. I mean, that show, they didn't have enough money. They didn't have enough time. There was a lot of overtime and then that went away. How hard was it for Gene um, to, um, you know, was that ultimately why he decided to leave? Or was it other things? Because, of course, the bird was back, you know, after his little hiatus. And um, uh, it had been, you know, really... Get out of the back door. <laughs> yes, I didn't even know he had a back door for a long time. It would just suddenly appear. <laughs> um, the money started, you know, the, okay, we had the change in nights, we had the, the budgets going down, we had all the stuff that Lucy was going through at the time. Right. You know, she ended up, you know, not having the studio anymore. Paramount came along and they had no no love for it. Uh, Herb Solo fought really hard trying to keep it on. We, we did everything possible. But the thing about it was we sort of were... The, Gene was military, Bird was military. We, there was something about that, that people got together and they worked together, they pulled together, they were doing something. And I think we had a sense that it wasn't just a TV show. We were doing something that hadn't been done before. The whole thing of going where no one had gone before. In a sense, yeah, people felt that. People were creating things. I mean, we we'd have, um, my brain just went. That happens, you know, once I turned 80, things started to happen. Um, Feinberger, we'd have a Feinberger, right. you know, we'd create something else, a new tool or a new whatever. People really cared and did things to, with each other. Like when Gene and I went to Universal, it's totally different atmosphere, like. <laughs> but there, it, you felt part of it. And so everybody was trying. Bobby Justman was still pissed off that he wasn't producing. Right. Yeah. He was trying really hard to, and he had sort of a, a sarcastic sense of humor. But uh, I think I think Gene Kuhn was just too soft inside. Mm -hmm. He was just a sweet guy, and he just couldn't stand being mean to people and having to tell people that they that they couldn't and wouldn't and shouldn't. Right. Uh, I, Bob and, and her putting him, Gene's marriage fell apart and that's what happened. That's why he left, that he met Jackie. But that's not true. He didn't get back with Jackie till we were at Universal. Yeah, so. Hey, but you stayed for a little while with John Meredith Lucas, didn't you? Before, you know, when Gene left to go do it, uh, uh, to catch a thief. To catch a thief? It takes a thief. Well, it takes a thief. It takes a thief. So. Uh, it takes you you um you stayed for a little while and finished off the season with uh, John Meredith Lucas. How how did it change for you when Gene was gone? Uh well, I didn't have a relationship, but you know John Meredith Lucas was a really nice guy. Uh, we got on fine. He I was good at what I did, so he, he did, there were no complaints, and I sort of was a guide for him because I was there every day and he could check on things and, and we worked fine together. I, I, I heard that in his book, um, he claims that I said, hi, I'm Gene Nails Coon, do you want to buy me? Now, maybe I said that, I probably did because that was some of the kind of things that I did back then. But he was just a very nice person. He was old Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So he didn't have the ego and the, the, the have to prove who he was. He knew who he was. We were fine together. The only reason I didn't stay with Fred Feiberger was because I wanted to get out of there and leave to clean that next season for them to start again. I didn't want to, because I, I knew I wasn't going to be there. Gene had, when Gene left, he said, don't worry, <laughs> you're coming with me. 
So I knew I was going to end up with him. So John was fine, but when Fred came, I knew I was out of there. So I I, I went back to being a floater. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, so okay. how is the world of Star Trek different than, say, Mission Impossible? Like when you were a floater, you were over there with Bruce Geller and, and the team at Mission Impossible. How was how that a different vibe than what you had at Star Trek? Working on it or, or, yeah. or just being around it? Both, both. Okay, well, working on it, it was just a job. Mm-hmm. Bruce was a nice guy. Olga, who was his, uh, his assistant, was very nice. and very sort of a bit more formal upstairs. They were just upstairs. Mm-hmm. We were downstairs. They was, I did like upstairs. And just a little bit, you know, more formal. The guys on the set were great. I used to go in in the morning and I'd... Marty and Peter would, would grab me, and one would be in front, one would be at the back, and they'd be hugging me, Bobby <laughs> Ben would be sitting there backing up. I was really cute. <laughs> that's, that's one of the funniest things, because I, I'm, I'm going to speak for Mark, because we're about the same age. We're, you're, we're both in our early 50s. And we grew up with these shows. Okay. So did I. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> we were we didn't know anything else because you know we started watching these when we were like six years old, so the you know seeing Greg Morris on Mission Impossible being the smartest guy in the room and yes. having the utmost respect and uh, and essentialness to the team and and Uhura on the bridge of the Enterprise in the same position basically. Uh, showing uh, the character strength and and the uh, essential nature to her character. I mean, we didn't know anything else. We we lo- we we didn't know that there was a, a division. You know, we we had no reference of of uh, of looking at African Americans as something different. And I think we were so lucky to have been in that position at that time. Yeah. And I, I said, Pierce was in the newspaper for, for being the black, first black one. Uh, they made, when they started, did Mannix, they brought Gail in. And suddenly they're black images. Then Diane Carroll's got Julia. Suddenly there's black people on the screen. You grew up thinking it was normal. For me, every time a new black face appeared was a, a magical moment. I can imagine. What's well, the beginning about Percy Rodriguez. Percy's playing a surgeon. I mean, that's, I mean, with everything we know about the civil rights struggle, that still strikes me as incredible. You know, that, it, that, that, that would, ha- it's crazy. It was, it was a really big deal. And, 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 and Percy, <laughs> ooh, he almost chopped my ear off one day. I think he was a little bit pissed off at me. Um, <laughs> he was Canadian. Mm-hmm. He was Portuguese, African, Canadian. And he, he didn't grow up with the kind of racism there that we had in America. Right. So he didn't understand what the big deal was at all. Interesting. No, not at all. But so. I have to point out to Darren that um, Percy did not play an admiral. He was a Commodore. Commodore, Commodore Stone. Yes, I remember. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> But but uh, perhaps the most brilliant um, computer scientist in all of Star Trek was uh, Dr. Daystrom, William Marshall, mm-hmm. who we still love. And what an amazing performance and what, a, what an amazing person. And did you love all the times that he was sitting down and, 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 and Bill was leaning over him? Yeah. Bill hated the apple crate. He really hated sure. that. But with Marshall, he, he had, had no to. other choice. There was no he other choice, to. yeah. <laughs> that was the other thing. I worked with Jody Augusta when I was floating, and I was always saying, black, black, black. Why, why can't that be a black hot? And I remember saying, well, why can't a scientist be black? And that was, I thought, that was one of the reasons I, was, I felt that I was there, was to remind them that you don't have to make every character white. Absolutely. No, even something. But that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Something as simple as the red shirts, you know, where you have that was also always integrated. I mean, I remember, you know, in the, by, by any other name where they turned them in the cubes and you think the other show, 
it's the black guy who's going to get it. But no, it's the, the yeoman. And, and Chatter looks a little disappointed when they restore him. It's like, oh, the girl who got saved. But, um, but so let me ask you, and this takes you way back. What was a day like? Walk us through your average day on Star Trek back in 67. Oh, yeah, right. I can't remember what I did five minutes ago. You want me to go back? You know, did everybody have a bar in their office? I mean, how were things? Was it Mad Men? And, and, and Bobby Dustman had a shower. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gene had his bottle of Slivovitz and, and I'd make tea for him. Come in, you, you check. Okay, any scripts come through? If a script had come in, I'm gonna read it before I give it to Gene because I get it on my desk before he gets it on his desk. And then I'm gonna pass it over to him. He's gonna probably be writing on something, either a memo or write, doing some rewrites. Uh, it was just the same. We didn't change the routine from, from there to go to at Universal. Right. It was still the same things. Yeah, work a day, everything, you know, in its place at its proper time. When, yeah. When the script, uh, I got, yeah, go ahead. When the script came across your desk, would you say to Gene, oh, the rewrite just came in and it's a dud? You know, I mean, would you you share your opinion? No, you say act two needs a bit of help. Mm-hmm. And it was usually the second act. They could get the first act okay. Right. They got it going, but then they would start to stumble and couldn't get it together. So it was usually, act two was usually a big problem. Right. And, and I mean, that's where I got interested in writing. Not that I did any writing, but I I at least got interested in it from seeing all those scripts coming through and seeing the difference that a rewrite makes. Did did Gene bounce things off of you? Like when he was trying to figure out how to approach a rewrite, did he just sort of sit down and spitball with you? Oh, yeah. I did that with all the producers I worked with. Mm -hmm. I remember one of them came back and said to me, the network wants to know what I've been smoking. But... uh, Because I was, I was good for that, you know. I think when well, Dr. King and I got on so well, I, I asked a friend, why did, why did he spend so much time with me? And she thought for a while, she said, you know, you always ask good questions. Right. And that was probably it, Ashley. That's just, I was curious. Right. And I always wanted to know when I... Been in, I'd lived in New York for a while and come back to California when everybody started, you know, Kennedy got killed. I thought, I'm getting out of here. Uh, Malcolm was, was then barred. Um, Martin wasn't getting through anywhere. I just thought the heck was it. And I came back because, I mean, Augustus Stanley Owsley made the best asset ever. And so I came back and became a very... Um, <clears throat> a big supporter of Owsley Acid and the ends and the love-ins and the, hey, I love it. <laughs> I was fine and I had to go to work at Star Trek, darn. <laughs> what is something about Gene Kuhn that reading the articles, reading, you know, the books, reading, you know, everybody's passed on secondhand, something we don't know. Tell us just a little bit about what, the, what he was like as a man. You said he had a great sense of humor. Um, he smoked like a chimney. We all know that. What, what, uh, what, 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 what else can you tell us about uh, Gene Lee Kuhn? Well, read my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Take that, Mark Altman. We're going to read the book, okay? I... <laughs> And I'm telling everyone in the audience, remember when Andrea's book comes, you have to buy. Jesus, come on. <laughs> I think that the, the biggest thing was was his his regard for uh, Niebuhr, Reinhard Niebuhr. Um, that was like a, a, a light guiding. He looked after his mom very well. He. He, he, he was kind and thoughtful and, and when he left his wife and she didn't speak to him any longer, he was brokenhearted. He didn't mind, what's his face? Um, Universal Studios, Glenn Larson. Mm. Yeah. 
<laughs> he, he didn't mind Glenn Larson being an asshole and, and, and going behind his back and doing things. He, he was just equanimity. But at the same time, he's grinding his teeth. Right. And you know the stress is there. I don't know what you don't know about him. Um, he thought a tea should be made using the agony of the leaves. Uh, he, he only, you know, that's the only way you should make tea is if you do that. Um, he drove a ragged old four-wheel drive. I forgot what brand it was now. And when I knew something was seriously wrong with him because he bought an XKE. Mm. Nobody mentioned before he left Trek, he bought an XKE. And you know, if you bought an XKE, if you've been driving your four-wheel drive, something is going on in your Something's head. Something's up. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, and, and was he, I, I imagine he was very interested in what you had experienced in the civil rights struggle, because here was a man who, a man who so articulately um, was able to write about these subjects. I mean, I think about that speech in A Taste of Armageddon about man is a killer species, but he's not going to kill today. You know, the eloquence of his words in Metamorphosis, where he's talking about the nature of love, um, Errand of Mercy, you know, how they choose not to, um, uh, you know, how they're fighting for the right to make war and then realize how stupid they are for it, or Kirk is. So um, what, did he seek out from you kind of your experience, which was so different than what his experience was growing up in Nebraska, growing up as a veteran, and then, of course, writing for shows like Wild Wild West and, 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 and Riverboat and, and Bonanza. And uh, he did a Have Gun, Will Travel um, and all those, those, those same shows that everyone of that era seemed to have worked on. Did you see Journey to Shiloh? I didn't see Have you ever seen that? I saw his the you know his remake of the Killers, but I've never seen Journey to Shiloh. Yeah, well, Journey to Shiloh was again. It was about you know civil war and 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 the choices that people make. And I don't know. I, I I'm I'm having a difficult time here trying to say what that meant about him. He was flawed, yes, but he also was trying not to be. He grew up in a town where the chief, I can't remember his name at the moment, but there was an, uh, a Native American, they'd been sent away, but when the son died, the chief in the middle of winter came back to bury his son on their land. And he was the first time that a Native American was um, considered a human being mm. because in the court they could if if they can't remember what that is but um, if 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 he could do this then it meant he was a person mm. and the judge said yes so he had this strong chief this strong Indian chief as a as a role model I mean if you I'd have to look it up but. Look it up, see who the big chief was in there. But he was influencing, he influenced Gene tremendously. And so when Russell came along, you know, that was his chance to give back. And when Russell left, because Russell didn't come and say he was leaving, Russell was just gone. And Gene was brokenhearted. Russell said that something had happened, I don't know, a bird or some omen had occurred and he had to leave immediately mm. and he had to go. And that hurt Gene. Um, Dave, David, Gerald, <laughs> I was so jealous of him because Gene, you know, again, was passing on the skills to somebody new. He, he had no children. He had a whole bunch of dogs, but he had no kids. But he cared. And dogs aren't very good writers. Terrible. All their drafts are rough. No. They're rough. Yes. Yeah. Very yeah. good. <laughs> Couldn't stop it. <laughs> so uh, you then went, went with him to It Takes a Thief, and then were you still with him on Quester tapes, or by then had you kind of moved on at that point? No, when we, we got to Universal, so I, I, I left um, Fred to go on, and I floated around, and then Gene said, okay, come. So I went over to Universal, and we were over in the bungalows, and I think Phil Kaufman was upstairs and um, 
which one did you hear of? L.A. PD Blue, L.A. Law. Bochco. Yes, Steve Bochco. Hmm. Bochco and, and, and Phil Kaufman were upstairs. <laughs> and so we had a good time. We had a party building there. <laughs> and Gene was working on, 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 on uh, Texas Eve. But then he and Jackie got together. Mm-hmm. And his whole life changed. And he no longer hung around late in the afternoon. He went home on time. <laughs> and, and then when, when, when Thingamajig sort of knifed him in the back and we left to go over to famous, the name of the game um, series, um, Gene didn't care. He was just really easy. But afterwards, um, Bill Russell came over and did a show. Mm-hmm. I started hanging out with him, and then through him I met the guy and I married him. Mm-hmm. And then I was gone too. So we would just see each other now and again. He teased me when my daughter was born. He said, your jeans sure are weak. And I'm looking <laughs> around my tent, and he's pointing to my daughter who's rather pale. Um, <laughs> did- and then he was gone. And I left the country a couple of days after he died mm. and hit the hippie trail and ended up in Australia. Wow. Did you know he was sick or did this come as a surprise? No, he'd been t- complaining about the smog and all that. And I think he called me like on a Wednesday and said, look, I'm going to go. I just want you to know I'm going in hospital. I think the doctor thinks I've got pneumonia. And I said, okay, I'll talk to you later. And he called me a couple of days later and said, well, it's not pneumonia, it's cancer. And then he was dead two days after that. But his dad had died of, of, of that. So I think Gene just thought, uh-uh, no way, I'm hanging around with this illness. And he just let himself go. Right. He was strong-willed mm-hmm. and soft of heart. Yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, Andre, that was just... Thank you so much for doing this and being on the show and talking about Jean and your remarkable story, which we're all going to read more about in your book. So what is your book called? Code Switch. Okay. And when can, when, when are you going to publish? I have to explain it, don't I? Code Switch is when you change your language and your way of speaking when you're in a different situation. So uh-huh. if I'm talking to you guys, I'll talk one way and if I'm talking to a black person I talk one way if I talk to somebody in power I talk another way and that's sure. what I had learned when I went to work on Star Trek. Oh. And, and when, when, when do you plan on publishing the book? Do you know? Do you have... I've only finished the first draft and I'm, uh, and I'm still trying to figure out how to make it better. Right. Okay. Well let us know so that we can tell everybody. We want to let... And when do I get to see more Thor? <laughs> um, you know, the world can't get enough of Chris Hemsworth, so I, I'm sure there's plenty of Thor in your future. Ozzy, Ozzy, Ozzy! Oi, oi, oi! I have a partner who is, um, he's a bit younger than me, about uh, 30 years younger, but, um, you know, we do okay. We, been hanging out for about the last 15 years and he takes me to all these movies that I never would have seen otherwise. Nice. So uh, that was one that I liked a lot. So. That's great. Well, thanks well, thank guys you. for all that you've inviting me. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun talking with you. You have no idea. We are we are babes I in the woods and we like rely I, on you. <laughs> I feel like I talked way too much. No. no. <laughs> Show has meant so us and the people that listen to the show and Gene Kuhn particularly it means a lot to all three of us but for Ashley and I who are both writers of TV he is uh, you know the, the, the son you know so um, and as much as we appreciate Gene Roddenberry and everything that he did in creating it uh, we, we really honor it's important that you know what Gene Kuhn accomplished and what he brought to this show that meant so much to so many of us um, and uh you know, the reality behind that fantasy, that science fiction is, is, is it's extraordinary. So we, we thank you for doing this and, and, and connecting and, and uh, being a part of the show. So, um, and I can't wait to read your book. And I know All right. in more stories and I can't wait to hear them. Yeah, there's a couple more stories in there. Uh, I, I bet, we'll bring them on. And uh, so you're not heard, huh? You got to repeat that. 
a little a little with about the bird. Ah, something about <laughs> the bird. Oh well, I'm not telling you that. I may put it in the book. Okay, good. We'll see. We're looking nice forward to it. Nice to meet you, Ashley. Nice to meet you, Darren and Mark. Thank you, Andy, so much. Thank you so much. Bye, y'all. So much fun. It is a dreary day. I'm going outside and do stuff. Wow, that was a really incredible episode, wasn't it? I, I loved her. She's, uh, she's awesome. She uh, is a nature. And that last thing that she said about Gene Kuhn, um, you know, he was strong-willed and had a soft heart. Just, oh, just awesome. I, I could have talked to her for hours, but I yeah. mean, she's something years old. And I think when she was talking about Gene passing, I think that was, I think yeah. it was kind of done at that point. I mean, she was obviously, it was like it was yesterday to her. Yeah. Um, I, what a remarkable piece of Star Trek history. You know, everybody thinks they know everything about Star Trek after 50 years, right? All these books and all this stuff. No. And everyone talking mentions. We're only scratching the surface. Right. I mean, what, what an amazing... Amazing and, person, Kuhn. And the truth is spreading only now. <laughs> Not the sun up in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this is, you know what? I, I've told you many times. I'm like, I don't know when I'm going to stop doing the show. And it's like, I keep saying, it's like, how many of these can we do? We do a show like this. It's all worth it. Yeah. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. Because this is, it was like, I'm just like what I said at the beginning. It's like a time machine. It's right. like, back to 1966-67 what it was like there and you see it shows like this where it proves that the trexperts are the people that we have on mm. you see it's not about us it's uh, about them i don't know it's a little bit about us well okay shh, quiet <laughs> quiet you <laughs> absolutely the trex the people we have on and, and you know i'm so proud of the fact that we've had all these unsung heroes. Yeah. Bob Salen, you know, the, the real genius behind Star Well, him and Nick, the real genius yeah. behind Star Trek II. Um, you know, when Harv all those years, deservedly got, you know, a, a, a spotlight, but, you know, Bob was eclipsed by that spotlight, yeah. by that spotlight. And here on day, who, unless you're really, you know, know your Star Trek or read the 50-year mission, you don't know right. anything, Andrea. And I mean... God, I mean, you did all this lip service about how Star Trek um, had the first African-American, you know, on the bridge in a position of power and all this stuff. And, and, but we see what it meant to somebody who was there. Right. right. And it was all, everything we saw on screen was going on behind the scenes too. Right. And that was, that's what's so magical about it. And that she's talking to Joe Augusta, to Augusta and saying, you, we need to see more black people on screen. Yeah. As yeah. scientists, doctors, yeah. and, uh, you know... This isn't about Twitter. She was no. fighting the fight. Yep. I mean, she went from knowing King and Karenga and Mar Malcolm X to working as a secretary at at uh, at um, Desilu, where they would say, oh, you know, somebody today would do uh, millennial. Oh, a secretary that's beneath me. She made real change working yeah. as a secretary at Desilu, and 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 it's us today. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. What, what do you think? I mean, Ashley, because I don't know if you know as much about Kuhn as maybe Darren and I do. Uh, oh, it was, it was, that was awesome. do now. I mean, I like would have happily just sort of listened to those, those stories all day long. Like I just, I resonated a lot to what she was saying about dealing with those writers because, you know, it was a very different time in terms of how a show gets run. You don't have like a staff of 10 dudes that you're, you get paid to yell at and they get paid to be yelled at. Not that I'm a yeller. I'm a, I'm a sweet guy. Um, uh -huh. But she's right. It's like managing those egos is tough. And then the example of Harlan Ellison, I thought was great because look, I mean, I don't know that anybody has so quickly sketched out, um, you know, an image of Harlan that felt so three-dimensional that he could yeah. be on one hand, this massive a-hole um, who vaguely hated his job, yet had this um, massive ego that could not admit um, to anything that might require revision to this side of him that walks down the street, you know, walks into this apartment building office and gets an apartment from her, right? It's like, that is just, yeah. what a complex character. And she just lays him out. 
just like that. Yeah. And it was just, I, I, we could just sort of sit and listen to that forever. We can't hear you, Mark. We can't. Same building that Majel and 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 and, and Jean had a uh, had a and a, uh, a pad, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. like why was, why was it? <laughs> sorry? It was just I just uh, want to point out. I, I, realize, was, I can't wait to hear the story about the bird. That's all. Oh my god! I I mean I felt like saying to her, "You do realize you're 83 years old. Finish the fucking book <laughs> before you die." <laughs> I gotta read this book. I mean, it's like, because I want to hear her story and I want to hear more Gene Kuhn stories and I want to hear Roddenberry's stories. Because of course, look, we worship Gene Roddenberry too. Um, but uh, um, he was a larger than life guy and the stories are as, you know, wildly entertaining. I mean, I think back to that show we did with Alan Spencer, how phenomenal to see that side of Gene that you don't hear about. Everybody who's trying to take credit for, for the show and then you hear these amazing stories from Alan Spencer about Roddenberry, what a, what a good guy he was at heart. And I think a lot of the ego came from an insecurity, you know. Um, but even Gene Kuhn, somebody as wonderful as Gene Kuhn, who we've heard is, you know, this total, uh, you know, liberal who was concerned about the human condition. But even he, he hired her because she had great legs, you know. And in particular, he really likes the curve at the top of the thigh. <laughs> I was like, that's information that... Okay. He's he's not wrong. <laughs> that you're not going to read that inside Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a great show. Oh, I, I it's 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 why I love doing this this podcast. The next week we'll go back to doing some goofy thing, but this was this was really great. So, uh on behalf of uh Ashley and Darren and myself, I want to thank you for listening to Glorious Trexperts. You can listen to us every Saturday. Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And now you can watch us on the Electric Now app. That's Electric Now. Go to your favorite app store and download it for your tablet, your phone, or your TV. And you can watch podcasts of the show along with our other podcasts, the 430 Movie, and of course, Best Movies Ever Made, as well as episodes uh, from the Electric Library, including Leverage and the Librarians and much, much more. So definitely check that out. But until then, we have one thing to remind you of. Keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course, engage. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.